listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Spoonie. Hey, hey, it's another episode of Growing Up Rock Hollywood. What's happening, my friend? How's it going? It's been a little bit. It's been a bit. You've been traveling. I have been traveling out on the left coast, as they call it, in sunny San Diego. I've spent my time by the pool, my friend, and I am back and ready to go. What do you think about that? That's awesome. I'm, uh, I'm going to be going to California at the tail end of the week, so I'm looking forward to it. I know. We kind of traded. You were always in California, and I decided I wanted to go out to California for a while. <laughs> yeah. So while I'm out there laying by the poolside at this wonderful San Diego resort, I get a phone call, uh, and I jump on the phone with Mark Gus Scott from Trickster. Are you familiar with the band Trickster? Give it to me good, my friend. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got uh, I've seen them live. I uh, went to the archives. I saw them live in February 91 with the Scorpions, October 91 with Warrant, and then December of 92 with a mighty kiss. That's it. They've played some fantastic tours. Of course, they had that hit record, that first record with Give It To Me Good and One In A Million. And, you know, people... People have two views on Trickster. Uh, some of them feel like they were part of the problem in the late 80s. Uh, they were too pretty for their own good, etc., etc. Uh, but I personally thought they had some really good rocking songs, not only on that first record like Line of Fire, uh, but also with uh, the, the record here, which didn't get a second uh, thought, you know, and here had some really, really good songs. Uh, and then more recently, they released New Audio Machine and then Human Error in 2015. They also released both on Frontier Records, and those equally had some really good rock and stuff. Because you know me, I'm not a I'm not a ballads guy, so I like my rock and roll. And uh, I thought uh, there was some really, really solid stuff on those records. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I have the first two records, and then I have this record called Under the Covers uh, that was uh, eight covers that they put out, and that was in 94. They did, like, Dirty Deeds, and they did, like, Revolution. You got to fight your right to party by the Beastie Boys. And then they were gone for 18 years. Like, I, since they weren't on the tour circuit anymore, and I was still seeing bands out there, you know, and grunge kind of came in and all that, but... I kind of lost sight of these guys. I didn't even know they were around. I didn't even know there was an album in 2012. Didn't know the 2015 album. I haven't heard any of it. Yep, so they had, they had kind of put it back together. Steve Brown kind of put it back together around 2000, 2008, I think. Uh, they did an Alive in Japan in 2008. But it's pretty much, um, well, it is the four uh, classic lineup guys. So it's Steve Brown and Peter Lauren and PJ Farley, I think his name is, and then Mark Guscott, who's the drummer, and this is, uh, this is who we uh, uh, have our conversation with, and it's a cool conversation. We talk about his growing up rock story and his upbringing and 
Uh, we talk a lot about Trickster and some of the awesome tours they did with not only Kiss, but the Scorpions and the, the famous uh, Blood, Sweat, and Beers tour from Warrant and Firehouse. So we get into all that conversation, and uh, Mark is an accomplished musician, and he's putting out a Christmas EP, which is uh, not a hard rock EP or anything like that. It's it's really um, traditional Christmas music, uh, and it's just a four-song EP, and uh, Mark is an accomplished uh, trumpet player, so the vocal lines in the songs are trumpet. And so, really, really good. I heard some of it, and uh, it's it's kind of a record that, you know, you can play in the background at Christmas uh, and be okay with, uh, you know, the parents and the grandparents and, and everything. It's just really traditional Christmas music. So, we talk a little bit about that and um, some of the charities that he is uh, donating uh, proceeds to from this Christmas EP. So, a uh, really good conversation, and that's about it, my friend. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, the interview because, you know, there's tons of rumors about they really started like in the mid-80s. Why did it take till 1990 to release that first album? If they started a little bit earlier, maybe they'd been a little bigger. Like those two hits, they're not by mistake. I mean, they had Bill Ray. I mean, Bill Ray was involved in some of my favorite Israeli songs, Loverboy songs, like they're connected to the right people, so I'm interested in hearing it. Yeah, so we'll, we'll definitely get into all that. So I'll, I'll put the disclaimer up there now before we get into this conversation. This was recorded over Google Voice, and so it's kind of a two-way conversation had on cell phones, and so the quality, the audio quality is not... Uh, the growing up rock standard audio quality that uh, you've come to be used to because I think that our quality on our podcast is usually pretty good. So this is a little less, but still fine. You you should be able to hear everything uh, just fine. So I don't want to scare you off. I just want to put that disclaimer up there that it will sound a little bit different than the norm interviews that we do. So uh, that's it. Hold out no longer. Let's roll this interview with Mark Gus Scott from Trickster. Sonny, we'll talk to you later, brother. All right, later, sir. See ya. Hey, it's Mark Gus Scott from Trickster. Hanging out with my good buddy Stephen Michael right here on Growing Up Rock Podcast. Check it out and turn it up, baby. All right, hey everybody, I uh, want to welcome Mark Gus Scott, wild man drummer from the band Trickster. Mark, what's going on, buddy? <laughs> Dude, Stephen, I gotta tell you, I- I'm having more fun here in Phoenix. First, the winter time, we're coming here on the cold weather back in the northeast where I'm from. And, and I know you're from the east coast, too. It's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're vacationing right now in San Diego at some resort. you probably got a big, fat glass with an umbrella hanging out of it. Tons of alcohol. Life's not too bad on this side of the country, is it? No, it's, it's pretty good. Hang out, put my feet up, and uh, talk to uh, rock stars on the telephone. That's Dude, nice just, just make do. Just make do. Don't hurt yourself, okay? You know, pace. It's, 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 the, the day is young. <laughs> That's it. It's early out here on the West Coast. There's no rest for the wicked, as I like to say. 
Sam, I'm not sleeping either, pal. So let, let's let's go with overtime. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> so is it hard for you to get into the Christmas spirit living in uh, Phoenix, where it's uh, like what 101 every day and sunny? You know, it's weird. It's funny. Funny you mentioned that. The, uh, I moved out here. It was September. October, it was September. So uh, Christmas came around relatively quickly. And I must say, I passed through towns during Christmas time where maybe it was somewhat tropical, like Florida or something like that. And it is very funny to see a palm tree attempt to be decorated like a Christmas tree. So it's certainly, it's certainly a, a far cry from standing in Rockefeller Plaza. But let me tell you something. Because they lack that element, they go over the top with making stuff beautiful and making it Christmas-oriented. So they don't have snow. They don't have the cold. They don't necessarily have pine trees all over the place. But, man, when they, talk, when they do decorations out here, they don't fool around. It's like a freaking Trans-Siberian Orchestra production on every street corner. Yeah, it's certainly a different Christmas spirit. Do you fancy yourself kind of a Griswold family Christmas guy? Do you want to go on the lights on your house? <laughs> yeah, I like what you said. That's very funny. No, honestly, no. There maybe was one, one Christmas I couldn't do that. You know what? I put effort into other areas of my life. When it comes to Christmas life, either you sub it out or, you know, that was typically at my time it was my wife's department. So she took care of that. Um, she, I just had to pay the bill. But, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, look, coming home at Christmas time and seeing your house all the stuff on it and having a neighborhood that has that sentiment ringing throughout, that, I mean, that's awesome. It, it truly is the, the most wonderful time of the year, without question. You know, it was my job just to put the music to it. <laughs> So, Mark, let's talk about your musical background and some of your past accomplishments and how your past accomplishments play a part in the release of A Christmas Miracle, your new Christmas EP. Which comes out uh, around Thanksgiving, if I'm not mistaken. You play trumpet on that. Talk to me a little bit about your earliest kind of childhood memories Growing up, what was it like in the household that you grew up in? What was the the music scene situation like in your household? Well, one thing is for sure, my mother really led the way on that whole charge. She was an accomplished pianist. Her sister was the same. Her parents were both magnificent pianists. Uh, she went to music in our high school, the same uh, school that was featured in, in the uh, in the movie Fame and the TV show Fame. She went there, so she she was very strong, very heavily influenced by music, and particularly the piano. For a lot of people that really may not realize, the piano is a very unique instrument in the sense that the whole keyboard is out there right in front of you. So to put a visual reference to music along with something or an emotion you may have inside, it's the only instrument you can see all the keys in front of you, so you have a, a different vantage point on uh, writing a song, on hearing music and visually at the same time. A lot of people don't necessarily make that connection. Uh, it truly is the foundation of all music just sitting all right in front of you. And uh, you can't see that on any other instrument like you can on the piano. So yeah. uh, one thing that was for sure, my mother, she, she was a son of a gun. She said, my son's going to learn music and she, he's going to have to start on the piano because that's the right way to start. And she's right. The problem is when you're seven years old, you don't necessarily want to take piano lessons. You don't want to play Mary Had a Little Lamb. You know what I mean? So it, <laughs> yeah. it's a weird kind of balance thing, and I deal with that now even giving instruction to other people sometimes. You know, there's things that you ought to do, but, you know, in pushing people in a certain direction, and I see that when I, with my kids, if you tell them to do something they don't want to do, what do you think happens? You know, they, they end up not doing it even more. 
So you really right, have right to the be, opposite ends, right? Yeah, man, you know it. Right, right, right. So, you know, you have to be very tactful in your approach when you're doing something like that. And uh, at least for me, I didn't, I didn't like playing piano at seven. But now when I turned 47, I think to myself, I wish I had more piano training. Because <laughs> you know I, mean? I do, particularly these days with recording, everything is recorded on piano. I do string sections, horn sections. Percussion, even. I do full orchestration, starting with a fu- piano fundamental. So uh, that's the way it is these days. And, and the sound banks that are that, that you can apply to that sort of you know, virtuosity is really unparalleled, it's more so now than ever. So, yeah, I wish to God I could play the piano even better than I do now. But, man, when I was seven, I was like, screw this, give me a drum. <laughs> so, so, so did you just... Did you just automatically gravitate towards the drum? I mean, was that the first instrument? Did you gravitate towards drums automatically? Uh, well, I'll tell you, even prior to piano, when I was very young, my grandmother bought me this big parade drum. You know, one of those drums you would see, like, uh, you know, in a marching band or something like that. And I, I must credit my mother also for giving me my first Elvis Presley record. So I put on Elvis' golden hit. And when Hansel came on, I just beat the crap out of that parade truck. <laughs> so it was. I just found something so uh, so satisfying out of beating the heck out of it. I felt great. And I, I, I used a hi-fi back then, a freaking record player. I'd take the needle and put it back on the song I liked and did it again. You know, I don't know what it was. But, yeah, there was something I really dug about hitting stuff, you know. <laughs> it was a constructive uh, release. It was really, you know, it was amazing. So, yeah, from a very early age, maybe it's somewhat, you know, primal, but I, I don't know, man. It, uh, there was something about hitting the drums that I really, really gave me great satisfaction. But if I expressed an interest in that, my mother took the reins and said, ah, if you're going to get into music, you're going to learn piano first. And mind you, the piano is a percussion instrument. So, uh it's kind of interesting that the uh, <laughs> way it worked out. And obviously, you um, adapted to it pretty well and had some sort of aptitude for it because, I mean, at some point you ended up going and studying music at the University of Hartford Park School of Music. Yes, sir. Actually, that, that was an amazing experience. I was a sophomore in high school, just finished my sophomore year. And I won uh, something they called the NAG Award. It was the National Association of Jazz Educators. Uh, I got a certificate of excellence from them. And it was pretty wild. And it enabled me to get admission into the University of Hartford as a sophomore in high school. I took all the regular college courses for music. I did a wind ensemble, jazz, a theory, composition. I played under some famous conductors. I did uh, master classes with the Empire Brass Quartet. I mean, some wild, wild stuff. And the level of game that those kids brought to a college program, they were the best in the country. So, like, to play with those guys, I was like, whoa, you know? I got in for trumpet. I wasn't the number one. I was, like, middle of the batch, you know, something like that. But to be with that elite uh, group, I mean, we sounded amazing. And and to play with that level of musicianship, that caliber of musician, it it was really good. It pushed you and made you look say, wow, look how good you can really make this happen. You know, some of these kids were like, holy crap, you know what I mean? So uh, to, to play with that, we recorded, I went for three summer sessions, my sophomore year, junior year, and senior year of high school. I went to uh, University of Hartford, the Hart School of Music. Yeah, and I think that's pretty incredible because, I mean, I think a lot of people, when you start talking about rock and roll and you start talking about drummers in rock and roll, I think, 
the drummers sometimes kind of get a bad rap, right? Because a lot of times <laughs> rock and roll is about the guitar player and the singer. Yeah, you're, I know what you're about to say. Yeah, I, I, if there's one guy from a generalization point with personality who's so not a musician, it's typically the guy that hits the thing with the stick. So, <laughs> yeah, you know as well as I, smash, right? Come on, Hulk, smash. <laughs> okay, I, I, now listen, I laugh because I know there's some truth to that, but in contrast, also some of the biggest solo artists are drummers with the biggest hits. Let, anybody know the name Phil Collins? All right? Yeah, Drummer. Probably more top 40 hits than anyone else could shake a freaking stick at. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Now that's just one. But there's a lot of cats. Stuart Copeland. He does a lot. Of, the guy for the police. He does a lot of movie soundtrack work. He's an accomplished musician, like an amazing cat. Uh, and now that you put me on the spot, I can't think of other ones, but I know there's a no, lot of them. I mean, Mike Poitnoy is, is another one that... Oh, yeah. Another fellow Arizonan, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Poitnoy's awesome. And just a great guy. Very, very nice person. I really like him. And he kicks ass. He's fantastic. Hey, who sang the biggest kiss hit ever, right? They're drunk. Thank you very much, sir. You're damn right. That was a Peter Chris sang the song best. Which, by the way, I can play on piano. So. <laughs> see, see, I'm trying to help you out a little bit there. Mark. I appreciate that, but yeah, I mean, okay, I, I mean, there's a lot of great musicians, but and, and it is funny that drummers get that rap, and sometimes it is deserved. I think there's some really crazy drummers out there, but by the same token, there's also guys that really can, have got a lot of game, and it, and it doesn't matter because they play drums or they play guitar, or whatever. There are people that have it. There are people that don't. And, you know, it, it's a beautiful thing when you see it and they bring it to a certain level. A lot of it comes down to desire. I'll be very honest with you. I mean, I, I, like I said, I did that University of Hartford stuff and then being with Trickster. A lot of times my desire level was not in the right place. I didn't really want to push it to that extent. And Trickster was such a far contrast to anything that I was doing musically, classically. So when things came, things started to happen for, for Trickster, you know, I was just in Trickster mode. <laughs> you know, I really never yeah. thought of doing, like, a classical thing. I was just wrapped up in rock. So, you know, if anything was stick, I was happy. We were enjoying some success, and, and I, I was very much at peace. Uh, only later did things come back to me when I started picking up the trumpet again, and I, I, you know, I had opportunities to do stuff in the movie soundtrack world and stuff like that. But I actually started pushing and saying, you know, I, I know there's a scene in that movie. I, I got an idea for a melody. What am I going to do behind it? You know, I started composing and really putting stuff together. And although I did it like a long time ago, not to the extent that I was really getting creative with it and really pushing it, because it takes it takes some effort to make it happen. A lot of people don't realize uh, a rock band. You got guitars, bass, drum, vocals, and you come over those blah blah blah. With an orchestra. You have your first section violin, section first section violins. You got cellos, you got woodwinds. You, I mean, you have your, your low strings, you have low brass uh, percussion. You know, it can get ridiculous. And God forbid you put special effects in on this. So mixing all that alone, you know, these tracks I do in a classical symphony piece. I mean, it's it's, it's ridiculous, and it takes effort to make it come out right. Being an artist is so selfish. It's really a selfish kind of thing. You do it to satisfy yourself. You have this thing inside, a feeling inside, a sound in your head, and you want it to come out what you're hearing in, inside. So to do that, it takes painstaking hours and a lot of attention to detail, and you want it to just come out just right. And then when it's done, that's when you want everyone to hear it. You hope you just touched one person. You hope one person gets it. 
That one person here says, wow, you really touched me with that. You know, it's like mass appeal almost doesn't matter. You just want to make that connection, you know, what I mean, with somebody. And the fact, you know, when somebody does accept your stuff and you get high praise and all that, it's, it's a beautiful thing. But you really don't do it to serve them. You do it to serve yourself, you know. And maybe that's like a little secret that I shouldn't be spilling. But it's the truth, you know. It's somewhat selfish until it's done, and then you want to share it with the world. And uh, at least that's the way I feel about it. <laughs> you know, it's like I, my day my day couldn't continue until I had it done right. You know, I think yeah, that, I think that's the sentiment that pushes you to make the good stuff come out. I, you know, I think that's really what it does. You talked about getting the Elvis record. What early on for you that drove you towards rock and roll? Because classical, all that stuff is kind of far from from Trickster, but Trickster really wasn't that far off in the distance at that age for you because you got into Trickster fairly young, 22 no, years old. Right? Younger than that, bro. Younger than <laughs> I joined Trickster. I was yeah, 16 so. years old. Yeah. It was 19. Wow, Let me so. figure this out. I, I was 16. I think I was 1983. No, hold on. 84. 84. I joined in 84. Yeah, and I just got my license shortly there. <laughs> so what was it that got you into rock and roll? How did you end up getting into rock and roll? Was it, you know, was it a record you heard? Was it, you know, some buddies you were hanging out with? What? How How did that it, Yeah, it, it all started going way back to the beginning. My first impression of rock and roll, like I said, my mother gave me her old, which was an original. I, I don't even know if my brother stole it or something. Uh, an original Elvis Golden Hits re- vinyl record. That was the first right. what I ever heard of rock and roll. From there, the Grease soundtrack. Grease was the hugest movie at the time. And, I had, you know, listen to all that. Cool. Yeah, man, I had yeah. a double vinyl, first edition, the whole deal, John Travolta, Libby Newton-John on the cover. Yeah. That was rock and roll to me. That And then Meatloaf came out. And when I heard Bad Out of Hell, it was like a step up. Like, whoa, you know? <laughs> right so, on. That, so those were the big three that started me off, uh, aside from the classical stuff that I was doing. As far as any popular rock music, that, that was what I thought rock and roll was all about. Then I got into public school. I had friends that were in public school, and they had older brothers and sisters, and they'd break out these records, and someone showed me Kiss Alive 2. And not only did you see the four pictures of the individual guy, you know, Gene, Paul, Peter, and Ace on front, when you open that double album up and you have the big centerfold thing of them on the elevated stage with fire and smoke, dude, when I saw that, I that said, what it. the hell? That, that, yeah. and, and then the first cut I heard off that was Calling Dr. Love. And dude, to hear that guitar riff with the cowbell and then the snare smashing my head, I, I, thought, I thought I heard the voice of God. So that is what, when I heard that, things, the things really started to turn. Things really, I, you know, I had an answer, who else out there that I don't know about that sounded like this? I mean, it was all new to me. I was, I was somewhat sheltered going to a private school under classical supervision from my mother and stuff like that. And there were these guys out there spitting blood, playing, you know, distorted guitars with fire and elevated stages. I was like, holy crap, what am I missing out on? And then I see TV commercials. They would have the Kiss dolls, and then they had a special on Three Two One Contact behind the scenes with Kiss and the lighting director. It was like, oh my god! It was it was like this whole culture, a whole part of the world that I had no idea what was going on. Then MTV came to town, and I saw Van Halen do Unchained, and so this is love on MTV. Yeah. Some of the first live videos that were ever played, 
that were ever made. Shit, I mean, uh, some amazing, amazing stuff. Well, I saw Unchained, and David Lee did the big split, and the lights in the Oakwood Coliseum, and the snare of Alex Van Halen destroying my skull. I mean, it didn't get any better. It was the greatest snare sound I've ever heard in my life. When he played So This Is Love, that snare is like, it's just, it's a pop that all got was like, yeah, man, and no one had it better than Alex. No one had it better than Alex. And I played the open cup a few times, and I'm sure nobody ever rocked the snare drum in that hall, more so than Alex Van Halen. And to hear that as a young teen, and like, you know, holy crap, what, again, what am I, what else aren't I seeing? And that was the pinnacle for me. I, I, I pretty much knew right then and there that that's what I wanted to do for a living. <laughs> I didn't do it for a living. That's just what I wanted to do, whether I made money out of it or not. If it were illegal, I'd do it. You know, it, it didn't matter. So that's what really started me on my course, particularly the Kiss and the Van Halen thing, were two bands that I looked at as like, oh, you know, that, that, that was what I, you know. Yeah. Right. So, so would, you, would you consider yourself a Kiss freak then? Were you somewhat of a kiss freak? Not a kiss freak. I mean, I like kiss very much, and particularly Gene Simmons. The first uh, album I ever bought with my own money for six ninety nine at Sam Goody, uh, no, at Crazy Eddie, was uh, was the Gene Simmons uh, solo album. And that opening cut he had on that radioactive, it was such a funky tune. I love that song. That drove me in a certain direction. I, I wasn't a kiss freak, but I identified with Gene a lot. And Van Halen really ruled me for some time. Even today, they're arguably my favorite rock band of all time, uh, whether it's Old Halen, New Halen. You know, but I guess starting it off, Old Halen really struck a very deep chord with me. And, uh, and Alex Van Halen has always been uh, someone I've looked up to as arguably the uh, greatest rock drummer in my mind. I think he's really uh, the tops. I know from Kiss Freak, the co-host of this show is a Kiss Freak, but... Um, but I was much more, uh, I was much more a Van Halen uh, person early on. Those first five records for me were the Bible. I mean, fair warning. Right. Love. You nailed it. Absolutely. Well, it was Van Halen 1, Van Halen 2. Then there was Women and Children First, Fair Warning, Diver Down. And 1984, I mean, that pretty much wraps it up as far as, you know, the early Halen goes, knew it all. You know, used to play all the records from uh, cover to cover, uh, you know, from, from the first song to the last song. And, uh, you know, it was the greatest thing in the world. And, and you know, it's funny when, when a guy like David Lee Ross leaves a Van Halen, you think, how can the world possibly go on? <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, that's and although it's... Yeah, although it did change, I can't say how much I love Sammy Hagar. I mean, that son of a bitch can sing. He's got a great attitude. Uh, I've met him on a couple of occasions. The nicest freaking guy. And he's, like, pushing 70, and he still kicks ass. I mean, is that crazy? Yeah. The son of a bitch is fantastic. He just had 70, yeah, he just had his 70th birthday. And oh, is he really? Okay. Happy yeah. birthday, Sammy. Uh, I mean, oh, my God, I love him. Love him. You know, even his solo stuff I like very much, but him with Alan, holy crap. So how do you end up in Trickster? Because Steve Brown was the original guy in Trickster, right? It was and, uh, Steve and Pete, yeah. They they formed it back in, like, 1982. And the first show was in 1983, I think. And I was the lighting guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so let's talk about that because that's interesting because I, what I read was that they had gotten together and – they were originally called Raid, I think, R-A-D-E, and they had got Correct. together and they played, they played one single concert and then they replaced the guy with you. Yes. 
Uh, all right, here's what happened. This is this is pretty funny, actually. Every I played drums uh, before I even knew about Raid, or you know, I, I knew I knew Steve Brown since I was. I'm trying to think honestly how old I was. Nine years old, and he was seven or eight, and we were in little league together. He'd uh, be standing by the first baseline, and if I got a hit, he'd be going, ah, you biscuit, you kind of bullshit. <laughs> he'd be busting my heart, something like that. Uh, but we knew each other. We were friends. He was a nice guy. He was a little, little bit of a wise guy. You know, he's funny. So I, I knew him, and then uh, riding bicycles at the local uh, BMX track area, you know, we, we'd have these trails that we'd ride at. You know, so he came up at the trails one day, and uh, he had this brand-new, cool Diamondback bike. I'm like, whoa, that's cool. And he, he was kind of short at the time, you know. He was, he was younger, he was, he was smaller. And he goes, yeah, man, I play guitar. And I look at him, I go, how the frick does this kid play guitar, you know? And he goes, yeah, come on over, I'll show you. I'm like, oh, am I really going to waste my time riding all the way to this kid's house to hear this kid play Mary Had a Little Lamb or something, you know? So I, I go, all right, let's go. You know, so you go, it's about one mile to his house. And on a bike, no big deal. There, like you know, seven minutes. <laughs> he pull, he gets to the house, and he has this big staircase going up to his bedroom. And I always notice this when he climbs the stairs; he kind of climbs it like on all fours, like, you know, using his hands to help climb up the staircase. I go, look at this! Oh man, if he climbs the stairs like this. How the hell is he going to play guitar? You know? So he gets it. He whips out this guitar, and it's bigger than him. And I go, oh my god, this is embarrassing. How's he get He plugs in. And he ripped my goddamn head off. Even at that age, he was ripping ACDC and Kiss Licks out. And I was like, oh, my God. And I saw I saw one other rock band. I had a babysitter once. So I was really young. And then she took me to a backyard barbecue where her brother played in a rock band. He played guitar. And I remember that. That was my reference point for what good rock and roll was. He played stuff that blew this guy who was 23 years old completely out of the water. That if Steve were dueling it out with this cat... This guy would have been in purgatory, you know. He was just so far beyond at such a young age. It was that ridiculous. His hand would blur as he played the damn strings. I go, oh, my God. That was so not ready for it. You know what I mean? So, I'm telling you, it was the weirdest goddamn thing. So then I stuck in my mind. I said, holy crap, it just made such an impact on me, you know. So every time I rode my skateboard past his house or something like that, I'd listen to see him once in a while. I'd hear him practicing, you know. I was like, oh, man, he's doing his thing. So one day I'm riding my skateboard. I have to go get a new dry broker drum head. Uh, my drum set, I have to go to the local music store. And I have to pass this house. And I go by and I hear this rock and roll music guy playing drums. And I hear that guitar. It sounds like Steve Ruff. Like, oh, that guitar sounds so familiar. It sounds so it can't be on So I go to the music store, I get my drum, and I come on back on the way home, and they're still playing. I go, son of a bitch, so I just sat out there for a little while. Next thing you know, the garage door opens, and out comes walking Steve. I go, I knew it, you son of a bitch. <laughs> so I saw he had another drummer, and I knew the bass player was a friend, and uh, I said, man, i got to get in this band. i got to get in this band. Holy crap. But they had the drummer, so I said, well, listen, I know you got this big show coming up at the middle school. I'll be the lighting guy. You know, I said, you got it. You're the lighting guy. <laughs> so that, I just had to be around it, you know what I mean? I was just so, I, I, I believed in the music. I believed in, in uh, the way he played, you know, and, and, and it just, it's the whole thing. It really touched me, you know? So I said, well, I can't be the drummer. I'm going to do something. So I said, I can work the light board. I'm in. So <laughs> then, then the time came. Uh, yeah, I'm telling you, man. I just wanted to be a part of it, you know, and I really did. And, uh, then the drummer at the time, Mike Payne was his name, real nice fellow, good drummer, 
<laughs> he had to go to college. You know, he had to stop playing this rock and roll baloney. He had to go. And so he went to college. There was a vacancy. I said, I'm first online. And uh, there was this other guy who was a good drummer. And, uh, you know, they weren't sure which way they could go. Me or him, we had an audition. And I, I guess the other guy screwed up. So <laughs> I, I guess I got lucky. So, so there you were, right place at the right time, huh? Does, yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, I, I knew the songs. I had a real passion for the music. I think that's really, you know, ultimately, you know, I guess you would have to ask them for a more true analysis, but I truly believe because I had such a passion for the music, a passion for the band, you know, it wasn't fake. I wasn't trying to learn parts of art to learn this song. I, I, I did things because I truly loved what it was all about. And I think that, you know, if there's a certain genuine something with that attitude that you can't fake. You, you know what I mean? And I, I, yeah, I truly pride myself on loving the music more than anything. Truly, truly loving it. I think that that comes across, and, I, you know, you can prove that uh, just by the fact that, hey, you know, it's been all these years. You guys were together, you know, during the late 80s and the 90s and stuff like that. And then, yeah, you guys took a break. But when you eventually came back in, in like, oh, what was it, oh seven, oh eight and kind of got things back together and did a couple more recordings. I mean, you guys are still the original lineup for the most Mm -hmm. part, you know, except for a couple guys that were there really early on, still the four of you guys. So you guys obviously must be friends, must enjoy the music as a whole, I would think, anyway, right? Hell yeah, hell yeah. The music is such a tiny thing, Um, and, and you guys came out, in the late 80s, but I read where you essentially, you you started playing in 87 and building this fan base, and there were several labels that were kind of interested in you guys, and then at some point in time, I read where you guys were recording what was going to be essentially your debut record, and it even had a title, Just Having Fun, but at some point that kind of either got sidetracked, but this all took place before you guys actually signed with MCA in 89. Is that true? Yes and no. Uh, We didn't make it an album, so to speak. I mean, we had a bunch of songs, and we needed to shop at the labels, so I guess we put it together as a collection, you know, but we didn't trying to necessarily model it as our first album. Uh, it was more or less a promotional tool that we would use to uh, gather interest or, you know, to, uh, to we needed to give our management ammo to go to the label and say, hey, okay. here's what we got, check this out, you know, that kind of thing. And those songs also morphed over time. We did a lot of pre-production for that first record where we made a lot of changes and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it uh, yeah, it wasn't exactly an album that we were looking to slate for release. But it might have appeared that way to the public. I mean, back back in those days, you couldn't just shoot an email. Here's the song. Right. <laughs> yeah, like make visible yeah. product and you know bring it by the office <laughs> or mail it or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know so that yeah, that's makes, what it was. That makes a little more sense because I was sitting here thinking in my head, okay, you know, you guys uh, were really making headway in '87. Had you had you made that progress and got that deal with MCA around 87 and put out uh, that first record around 88, I think you guys would have had, you know, a couple of extra years before that 
bottom fell yes. out. And if you guys that couple of years and, and here had been given uh, a reasonable shot, you might have ended up in, in a much bigger place than where you initial where you ultimately ended up. You know, you had to have that. Like we don't. It's not like we haven't given that a lot of thought. Believe me, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think a lot of rock fans know uh, also the way the uh, decades changed as far as the trend in music. How MTV led the charge on making change for the for the 90s, and we really did just catch that last wave out of the 80s into the 90s and. Uh, and I guess we held on to it as long as we could, but at a certain point, things really made, there was a big change. And yeah, had we struck, uh, the iron earlier, I think we would have been a hell of a lot better off. We would have made a hell of a lot more leeway. And if we got that here album out a couple of years earlier, yeah, I think, I think my house would have been three, four times as big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cause I mean, here, here's a, here's a great record. I mean, that you don't, it doesn't get mentioned a lot. In fact, probably the newer records, you know, it's the first record and then like, you know, the newer records, the last couple of records you guys put out, but here just kind of, and I thought here was a great record. I think I, I thought here had some really, really good tunes on it. So, uh, well, I appreciate you know, that. I, believe me. Thank you. We had three number one videos on MTV. We, uh, our, our third number one video was Surrender. It was the ballad, the big crossover. We were two weeks number one, and MTV canceled Dial MTV, the top ten countdown. We were the last number one video to be played on MTV, and we were never played on MTV again. So that's kind of weird. True. You know what I mean? But that shows how they really instituted a change, a drastic change. Not like a, a, a slight, you know, it was a big deal. And it wasn't just, like I said, a crime against bands like Trickster. It, it, even big bands, Death Leopard, uh, Bon Jovi, they were selling 8, 10 million records every time they came out with an album. The year after they did that, 1991, what do you think they sold off their next record? You know, they went from like, you know, 8, 10 million copies to like 2 million copies. So a band yeah. like Trish has sold a million copies where you think it left us. You know, when you have 80% of your sales drop off, that's freaking crazy. I don't care what business you're in. When you have a reduction in sales in, in a very short period of time that's that drastic, most companies don't last. You know, so it's kind of weird, you know, and uh, the fact that we have the opportunity today to do it all over again it is truly a gift from God. It's truently amazing. And what fun we're having. It's really awesome. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey, it's Mark Gus Scott from Trickster, and you're listening to my rock and roll story right here on Growing Up Rock Podcast. fortunate enough to do some really good tours in, in on that first album and even even early on in the second record uh you guys you did a tour with kiss which for you having you know talk about 
Kiss a lot too, and having that been a, a, a vital album in your early development, what was that like for you to, to be able to tour with those guys? I, you know, it was very funny. We were just finished recording the uh, Steer record in 1992, and we were dying to, you know, think about how we're going to start touring to promote the record, you know, to go back out down the road. And we didn't know, you know, what was going to be happening. We had a new agent, all this commotion going on. And I get a phone call from my manager. And this was, this is classic. I was uh, with, with some people at the time. And I get a phone call. And, uh, and you know, we're ready to hear some news about something. So he says, Gus, get a pen. I'm like, oh, here we go. So I get the pen. He goes, uh, I forget the exact dates, but he goes something like, November 22nd. Stabler Arena, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Go, oh, oh my God, it's an arena tour. Here we go. He goes, November 25th, in Erie, Pennsylvania, at the so-and-so uh, amphitheater. And then he goes, uh, November 30th, Meadowlands Arena, New Jersey. I said, who the, can I curse on this show? <laughs> oh, yeah, you can. Yeah. I, said, I, I, I said, Jesus Christ, who the fuck are we playing with? He goes, Gus. You wanted the best, you got the best. And I sat, I said it with them, I said, the hottest dirty in the world, Carson! I was like, holy shit! You know, I, I ran outside, I tore my shirt off, I was like, ah! <laughs> and I got down on my knees on my mother's front lawn. I said, yes, yes! <laughs> it was like such a classic moment in history. <laughs> And my friends, my friends who were with me at the time, they were looking at me. They couldn't believe it. I, you know, now we're going on the road and opening for Kiss. I mean, who the hell gets a phone call like that? You know, and you know, we knew something was happening, but to what extent? And it was our rock and roll heroes. It's like, are you freaking kidding me? What the fuck? And we're playing the hometown arena, Meadowlands, New yeah, Jersey. I mean, holy, that was where I saw my heroes play. But I said, one day I'm going to be just like that. And now I'm opening for Kiss at the Meadowlands? What the, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, I mean, that, that was just, yeah, it was, it was, uh, at that point, it was the greatest phone call of my life. Just the idea of doing, and, and the way my manager did it, Joel Weinshanker, a shout out to him. It, 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 was the, it was the best phone call of my life at that point. It's so funny. Looking back at it now, again, I was like tearing, I was laughing, I was crying, I was like, I was down on my knees thanking God. It was really out of control. It was just so mind-blowing to think that, that we were so excited about the album. We really liked the material that was on here. We were proud of it. We were so excited. And the big thing was to get it out before we hit the tour, you know, that was also one of the stipulations. They wanted to make sure a product was in the marketplace before we hit the road. So there was a lot of excitement to what was going on to finally get the call saying, hey, we got all these arena dates opening for kids. I'm like, holy crap. You know? Do you, so, yeah, that was, do you uh, remember what? Do you remember what Kiss tour that was? Revenge, Revenge 1992. Nice. The Revenge tour. Nice. Yeah, it was crazy. And, uh, you know, we, we, we had met those guys a few times prior. But I got to tell you, the idea, I, I ate dinner with Gene Simmons three times a week. I mean, it was amazing. He was so cool from day one, came into our, you know, we had met him a couple times prior. But on the first day, he comes to the dress room, welcome us to the tour. He was so nice. He always hung out. You know, Eric Singer, the drummer, I always looked up to. He was great, great player, such a friendly guy. It, it was amazing. I did sound check for, for them once. I did, I did the drum check on for Kiss. Is that amazing? Yeah, I think I did it more than nice. a couple times. Yeah, and I did, uh, 
Uh, <laughs> I love it loud. A boom, boom. What songs did you play? Not too, I think that was the only one I did because it was just so anthemic, you know, and, and I would, they did that in the set, so it made sense to check it, you know, <laughs> and then uh, to get them on the mic. And then uh, I think I think I once did Creatures of the Night, the drum solo opening. <laughs> Yeah, but but yeah, to play because uh, Eric wanted to hear the drums on the house. You know, so I said, so he said, just play the drums." I'm like, you got it, pal. What you <laughs> that was amazing. That was really amazing. Very cool, very cool. And then you uh, you you played a, a bunch of dates with uh, the Scorpions. What was that like? Oh God, three months at least, maybe more. I don't even know. But yeah, we. Opened, I don't want to misspeak, but sometimes we opened up more dates with the Scorpions on a single tour than I think than anybody. Uh, we were really? with them a long time, and what a great successful tour it was. It was huge. I mean, they had their uh, Winds of Change album. We were fresh out of the box and rocking on MTV. So, man, we dominated North America. It was ridiculous. Uh, we did multiple nights at several spots. Our uh, sold-out shows, Denver, uh, oh, God, McNichols Arena in Denver. I can't say how amazing that was. I, I just so many highlights. Oakland Coliseum, that we were talking about earlier, when Van Halen recorded those Unchained and so this is love videos. They did that at Oakland Coliseum, and that's what influenced me to play. And we sold it out two nights in a row. Holy shit! Come on, that's great stuff, and it's just an honor. What a freaking honor! We're so lucky, and they treated us—they treated us with well. respect and great, great people. Man, we never had a bad experience. They were so nice, so freaking nice. Probably the most famous, or at least one that that I certainly heard about quite a bit, was the was the Blood, Sweat, and Beers tour, which was <laughs> House of Lords. Okay, that was an infamous tour. Yeah, if, if the Scorpions analogy was we, uh, you know, blew the roof off with Warren Firehouse, we we set the the, the pile of heap on fire. I mean, it, 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 we we just kicked out the back door with that one. Man, nobody had more fun and dominated this country more so than Warren Trickster and Firehouse in the summer of 1991. But we knew it was going to be a good tour. We didn't know it was going to be that good. We, we, we did some largest places, and that was great, and then we did real large places. We did things like uh, the World Amphitheater in Chicago, 33,000 people sold out. Now, who the hell would have thought that Warren Trickster Firehouse had that kind of juice? We rolled into town. Uh, it was the night before. I remember we went to this nice hotel, you know, we're rolling in, we the police escorts and all that crap, and uh, there's some suits sitting at the bar, you know, some corporate people. They go, oh, I heard you got it. They go, hey, you're the Warren Trickster Farrell stayed at Blood, Sweat, and Big. Yeah, how you doing? How you doing? They go, oh, uh, you got the World Amphitheater tomorrow. Yeah, 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 girl, over there. You know, I, I don't think it's sold out. I don't think it's sold out. Oh, maybe you're right. We don't know. And you know what? The next day, when it's sold out, yeah, we were we were pretty happy that the, the guy would find out about that. <laughs> so yeah, it was kind of we, we we exceeded a lot of different expectations on a lot of different levels. And overall, we became friends, we became family members, and we had so much fun. What a what a what an amazing time to share with some great people and just rock rock the world. And dude, let me tell you about audiences that had fun at the show. Nobody had more fun at the show than that. Let's run beer store. We kicked ass. So much fun. I, I'm guessing that there, there uh, have to be some pretty damn good stories associated with that tour. No, nope, uh, there was none. None at all. I'm sorry, my lawyer's calling. I had no, there was no fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Yeah. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't at least ask you to share something with us. Come on. You know, it's funny. Every once in a while, somebody asks me about a road story or something like that. And the crazy part is, and this may be hard to understand, every day there was something. So it wasn't it, – yeah. it, it, you don't, like, write this stuff down and say, oh, story A, Chicago, Illinois. I mean, sometimes there is, but for the most part, because it's so maniacal, it was just another day. And the stories involve other people, so sometimes I'm very hesitant to start telling stories. I don't know what they want. Change the, name, change the names to protect the innocent. I get it. But that's half, see, that's half the story, though, man. When you heard certain individuals did certain things, you're like, you got to be great. You kidding me. <laughs> so you're not going to share any good stories with us from the blood I'm more, you story. know, that, don't say that. Don't say that. I'm more than happy to. The thing is, I'm really trying to think of, like, when you tell somebody a story, you want to, you know, start at the beginning and at the end. And I'm trying, I, yeah. I, I, certain highlights pop up, but I'm trying to put it into story form, and that's the foggy part. And one thing is for sure, warrants. Those guys taught us how to drink. Uh, now, uh, you know, everybody enjoys drink now and again, but, man, I, I wasn't a huge drinker. I really wasn't until I started hanging out with those guys. Those guys, they, yeah. they, not that they forced me to put maybe one step below it. You know? It was such a part of their culture. And uh, we were not drinkers like that. We really, I mean, everybody has a wild party that again. But every day for these guys, normal life was a damn party like that. You know what I mean? And, you know, we were young. So, again, we would go down to Jersey Shore and go cover crazy and wake up on the, uh, you know, in the, in the bushes somewhere. But, man, it was like daily life. Every day you put all of us together. It was crazy. It's freaking next level. And uh, I think it was our tour managers and people like that that really had the roughest time keeping us all together and making sure nobody got killed. I mean, you know, we had firearms and, you know, alcohol and, <laughs> you, know, and you know, tens of thousands of people around. It was, you know, it's an accident waiting to happen. We would have firework wars. Oh, my God. We had a road manager and then. One day uh, we had a switch. We had to make a change, so we had no road manager. So we had no babysitter, and we had firework wars in a freaking parking garage. I mean, just like some wild stuff. Firearms and alcohol sounds like a rap tour, for God's sake. Speaking of firearms, Pete and I were typically our daily was hanging out together. You know, this was on the Scorpion store. Funny thing, we, uh, <laughs> if we on a show day at the arenas, we wouldn't get a hotel. They had showers at the arenas and like you know food and everything, and we slept on the bus, so we just used the arena as our house. And there'd be nobody in there except for, like, the people working, putting the stage up and the sound and the lights and stuff, so we could run all over the place do whatever frick we wanted. Now, we came to <laughs> we came to Arizona, funny thing, of all places one day. We were playing Compton Terrace, a big outdoor venue in Arizona, held 18,000 people. We sold out that night, but during the day, there's nobody there. We were, had nothing to do. So it was a big, wide-open desert with a stage in the middle of it. And, you know, we're looking around like, what the hell are we going to do right here? So me and Pete, you know, we got our 9 millimeters, put it in our belts, and, uh, you know, let's, oh, there's some golf carts over there. Let's go for a ride. Okay, so we go golf cart, run around. Oh, we'll go find something to shoot or something, you know. Blah, blah. All of a sudden, these two guys in another golf cart come up from behind us. We see he's coming off ship. Get, things, get, the, get the guns chambered, you know. We line up a confrontation here. The guy comes out of the cart and starts yelling, you got my cart. He's yelling at Pete. He goes, you got my cart. And Pete goes, yeah, well, we're playing here tonight. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> so, so I realized that on the side of Pete's cart, it says Mr. Nix. Now, little did I know at the time, it was Stevie Nix's father that owned the place. 
<laughs> and wow, he took really? his golf cart. <laughs> he took his golf cart. And then, so when I, once I saw the thing on the side, I said, oh, my God, it's Mr. Nix. It's Stevie Nix's father yelling at Pete. And Pete and I are about to draw on the guy. So I called him back. I said, dude, 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 it's okay. It's okay. And Pete's getting all riled up. <laughs> but he didn't see the sign, apparently, until he was gone. And he, he, he gave the card back. But I swear to God, I don't know if the guy really knows how close he came to getting drawn. I, it was it was pretty heavy. <laughs> but you know, it's just like weird stuff. I mean, dude, who would have thought? I mean, being is your final joint. So, you know, and uh, here Pete is the opening act dude yelling at him. Saying, yeah, we're <laughs> Now, we didn't mean any harm by it. We were just trying to kill time. And it's a typical thing at some of the larger venues, but they have golf carts so you can get around. And we weren't beating the crap out of them. We just were trying to cruise around, trying to have fun and kill some time. So that, that was a funny one, but could have had deadly consequences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. Anytime firearms are involved, you can always have that opportunity, right? Oh, man, I'm telling you. Well, yeah, we, we, we were careful. But we, so we didn't know who the guy was. You, you know what I mean? He came up in an aggressive fashion, and we're in the middle of a goddamn desert. We don't know where we are, what's happening, and you're allowed to carry in Arizona. So, you know. <laughs> Go figure. Fun side. That was just one thing that pops into my head. And, and, and again, there's just ran, every day there was something. You know, sometimes, sometimes yeah. yeah, whether it contains firearms, nudity, alcohol, or just like, you know, I'm not quite sure what the hell it is. Uh, you know, UFOs. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. One thing, one thing is for sure. When you spend time like that doing amazing stuff with some of your best buds, there's some amazing stuff that happens that, you know, you scare all together, and that's what makes it really special. You know, it's not, it's not a business arrangement, you know. It's not a corporate trip. It's, you know, it's something really special, the achievement, the, the accomplishments that we did all together and got to live a dream, you know, together that was that, that so few people get, get to experience. can't tell you how fortunate we were just to, to have those kinds of experiences under our belt. Yeah, and it sounds like the majority of tours that you guys were on, it sounds like for the most part you don't have any nightmare stories from bands treating you uh, no. poorly, do you? I, I got it. No, all kidding aside, I'm not just saying this to, like, you know, protect uh, anything. We, for some strange reason, everybody, from the moment, the first band that ever called us was Striper. And from the moment that they ever called and the last band we ever toured with, we have been fortunate in the sense that no one has been a dick. I, I find that amazing, personally, where guys like Gene Simmons hang out, where guys like John Bon Jovi sit and have a beer with you. I don't know why. I, number one, we're fun, I guess. Uh, number two, we yeah. were doing well. And when we do well, people typically, whether they curse you out from behind your back, you know, that, that when they're in your face, at least, they're pretty nice. So <laughs> at least, whether they were faking it or not, we were treated very well, very respectful. I did a, soft, a celebrity softball game with President Donald Trump. And let me tell you something. He was just one of the guys having fun, hanging out, telling jokes, beating the butt end of a joke laughing about it, not pulling, uh, you know, some kind of aristocracy rank. What what a, what an amazing experience. I had a catch with him in Yankee Stadium and played ball. I, what, I mean, come on. Who the hell is that? And he was just having a great old time, taking pictures, having fun. And what a sweetheart of a gentleman. So, I mean, even at that level, to be treated, you know, with, as a regular person, really amazing as an equal. Uh, that was amazing. 
And uh, I can't tell you how it opened our eyes to how we should be with other people. You know what I mean? It's almost yeah. like setting an example. And at first, you're just like, oh, my God, you can't believe that that's actually happened. But you know what? It sets a tone, and it's a good learning experience also. And I think we carry that today, and, you know, we give people respect that are coming up. It's professional, and it's also a human thing. So I think it's just the right thing to do. And uh, well, I don't know. Again, an amazing experience. And I think it's been well publicized how much uh, support you give to the families and the troops of the service folks that support our uh, country. So I think that that goes a long ways to show, you know, it's an important thing to you as well, right? You, you know, you bring up an interesting point. Like this, when we salute the military and do stuff like that, do you know how long we've been doing that, even outside the band? When I was in my middle school, I got to play with the Paramus High School marching band, and I would do uh, parades for Memorial Day and Fourth of July and stuff like that. And you know how we always end the parade? We'd go to the George Washington Cemetery in Paramus, New Jersey, and we'd blow taps, you know? Or we'd be at Memorial School on Midland Avenue in Paramus, and we'd have a receiving ceremony with the mayor there, and I'd play taps at the school. Always come to honor the veterans in front of the flag or something like that. I've been doing it for 30, 35 years. So it started a long time ago that this whole nice thing, I think it's part of our culture. We didn't grow up in, like, urban Chicago or on the streets of L.A. in the ghetto or something like that. We were white suburban kids, and we had a decent upbringing. We were well-educated. Our families weren't broke. You know, we didn't have silver spoons in our mouth, but, you know, we were middle class. And, you know, we had families that loved each other and cared and stuff, you know. So I, I think we were brought up a certain way where it breeds certain results. And, you know, like I said, I, I was blowing taps at cemeteries since I was, you know, 14, you know. I, so I don't know, man. Uh, it just felt natural to me that, hey, I'm playing trumpet. I got nothing to do better than say, hey. So it, it was no big deal. I've been doing it for so freaking long. You know, it's uh, only more, you know, more recently get into the van and start doing stuff like this that, you know, a newspaper guy wants to write about it. And that's cool, fine by me, you know, but I do it for them, you know, and I've been doing it for a long time. And I won't accept uh, compensation for it, either. even times where they want to give you something. You know, I, I do it because I love to do it. And another thing, man, when we played out on the road, both Kiss, Scorpions, all the big tours, you know what we play a lot of? A lot of military bases. Like, I think we play just about every one in the whole country. And... You know what these sons of bitches are like when you come to their town? They want to kill. Love they, oh, man, they're no, they are an aggressive, aggressive fan. They want you to come out louder, play longer. They want to slam the gates and freaking bang their heads more than anybody. So I love playing military faces. Oh, man, I'm telling you what. They, uh, they, they, put, they do something that they're truly underappreciated for, and they should be totally emulated. And I think the Americans that are not in tune with that ought to wake the frick up. But these guys sacrifice so we can play rock and roll. I mean, come on, man. The very least I could do is play my horn at a cemetery for the ones that have fallen, you know, and to honor them in some way. So, and, and, yeah, and I have, a, I have a bunch of friends who are, you know, in the military, and I'll, I'll recite some names right now, Brian Peppercorn, Dave Dillon, and Wayne Aragon, some true great veterans, my friend here in Arizona. Eric Reinhardt, man, there's just too many to list. There's so many people I knew that were Cherokee, another one of great military veterans, friends of mine, that have served. And i, I got to tell you, I never really understood what it was to serve until later in life to really understand what it's like to give of yourself in that capacity for your country. And I think that's amazing. That's an amazing quality. And people that step up and do that, they deserve some kind of recognition that they truly don't get. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you hit the nail on the head, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's nice once in a while when people appreciate that, and clearly you do, so that's a good thing. Good on you. So what's your future for Trickster? Are you guys doing any, like, rock cruises or any uh, <laughs> small tours, anything? You know, so many rock cruises these days, Monsters of Rock Cruises and, and people playing. A lot of uh, bands from our era, they get the opportunity to go do these things and to cost-effective for them. Well, I tell you, we've been, we've been fortunate enough to be offered a couple, uh, maybe more than a couple, but we just have, we haven't had – you know, it's a weird thing to devote a week to doing it. Uh, you only do a show or two, <laughs> and then you go up to something else to, to lock – this is one of the jokes in the band. To get all of us together at one time is a really big challenge. To get us all together for one time for a week is an impossibility. So, I, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of family commitments, uh, other projects, things like that to coordinate it. We have yet to be successful in doing so. But we've got the offers. Who knows? The right offer may come around and just lock us up. We'll see. I don't want to say, you know, if I say no now, two weeks from now we'll get a call, and then I look like a jerk when you issue. Sure. <laughs> but would I love to do it? Hell yeah. Put me on a boat with some rock and roll, and you know, come on, I'm in. Take me to the Caribbean? Okay. <laughs> but again, to make it happen for a week with everybody and schedules and all that kind of stuff, it, it just has yet to happen. We shall see. But I got to tell you, man, for the past nine years since we put this back together, you know the freaking huge shows we play? Uh, playing with Poison, the band Boston, Cinderella, Ted Nugent, Slaughter, Warren, Winger. God, I'm trying to think Scorpions, but the Scorpions again. Kicks, all friends of ours that we've made over the 20-some-odd years we've been doing this. Uh, I mean, weird. So it's crazy. Everybody's I mean, still having a great time playing big damn shows, kicking ass. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Mark. I, I find it really, really um, uh, a problem that Steve Brown can't just uh, pin Joe Elliott up against the wall and, and make him uh, take Trickster out on one of their many uh, U.S. tours. Jesus, they take Tesla out every other day. <laughs> You're too much, man. Come on, that's not that I mean, I mean come on, tell Steve Brown, the kid, the kid plays guitar and fills in for Viv when he's not there, and and uh, and Joe can't do the guy a favor and take to, uh, Trickster out for a month or two. Come on. Well, number one, that's a pretty damn big favor. <laughs> but, but, but let me but let me say this: You think they haven't talked about it? <laughs> yeah. You know what's really funny? Uh, back in the day, before we got signed with that first record deal, uh, we became friends with the guys in Def Leppard and their management company. Uh, our managers uh, were the protégés of Def Leppard's manager, Q Prime. They managed Def Leppard, Queensryche, Metallica, and I think everybody. Yeah, right. Literally everybody. And the pitch that their man- Def Leppard's manager made, Peter Lynch, he'd go to the rest and say, "Who do you think is going to Def Leppard next year? Yeah, you better sign Trickster now." Blah blah blah. And guess what happened? Def Leppard ended up going out by themselves and doing an evening with Def Leppard. <laughs> so nobody opened for him. <laughs> it's like, really? You know? But that, that was the way it went down, you know? But it was pretty cool to have them batting in our corner, you know? But who yeah. knows? I'm not going to say anything. All I can say is who knows what the future may bring. And to open for yeah. 
Come on, dude. And then Steve just collect two checks. <laughs> I saw, yeah, I saw those guys twice last year. And I, I'm a big Tesla fan. I like Tesla a lot. Oh, yeah. Come them. on. Twice last year, they had Death Flipper both times. One year was REO Speedwagon. I think another year they split the bill with uh, Poison or whatever. And it, Tesla opened up both years. Yeah. Hey, dude, I got to tell you, I just saw them last year. Wow. I mean, they put they, they really what a hell of a production, sound quality, top notch. They're playing great, vocals sound great. I mean, I can't knock them, dude. They, they, visually, it was amazing. That the, the lighting, the wow. I mean, wow. It really was something. I stood on the stage. I stood behind, back of the house, right by the soundboard. Wow. I mean, it, it's pretty impressive, you know. Dude, you know how long they've been doing it? Oh, crap. Oh, yeah. You guys, you know, yeah, they're true veterans of what's going on, and, and man. So, Mark, you've been awesome with your time, so I want to talk about this Christmas EP that you're getting ready to release because I want people to know, even though primarily uh, the listeners are, are hard rock and metal, we want to talk about this because I think not only is it a good idea, but also um, some of the proceeds from the first single are going to a good thing. So let's talk about your uh, Christmas EP coming out in Thanksgiving, Christmas Miracle. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, it's kind of weird. I guess most people that do a Christmas album, they plan it far in advance. And with me, I must admit, I didn't plan it far in advance at all. As a matter of fact, when I went into the studio, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. It was kind of funny. Guys and sister, Pete and PJ, went off and, and did a project with Eric Martin. And then Pete had a couple of bands he's playing with in the Arizona area. And I stood around and I said, holy crap, what the hell am I going to do? <laughs> I, was, I was doing some, some work with uh, a company I work with, Global Star Productions, and we're doing some uh, movie soundtrack work for a movie called The Monkey King, the biggest movie out of China. So I was doing some scoring, doing uh, work for the video game that I actually recruited Pete to do some engineering on. He's pretty good on the board. And we did some uh, soundtrack work and some... Uh, special effects sound work for a video game for the Monkey King. We were getting, coming up be, trying to be all creative with these sounds for, for fight scenes, for punching and laser beams and all kinds of crap like that. And let me tell you, when you start getting those creative juices going and you're doing it for a few hours, you start to get a little punchy. And so we take a little break and Pete says, hey Gus, go, go get that trumpet out of your car. Let's uh, put up a couple of mics see what it sounds like. So I said, uh, okay, I'll go get it. And I've played the horn in the studio a few times, but never as like a lead voice. So I, you know, I was curious to see what we're going to sound like, and Pete was pretty good on the board, and he said, let's see, you know, see how this thing comes out. So uh, I played for about 15 minutes. He uh, says, okay, go on, let's, let's, let's listen. So I go to the control room and take a listen, he dials a few knobs, and we take a look at each other and say, hey, that, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> you know? so, so I said, well, uh, what are we going to do with it, you know? And uh, so not much happened. A couple days later, I start thinking about songs I could possibly put this voice on, you know? And one thing I was, I guess I was obsessing on it, a song, Ave Maria. It was a famous classical song, mm-hmm. song by Franz Schubert. And uh, I knew it for, I don't know, a couple of decades, I guess, you know, learned it in my classical, you know, training and stuff like that. But, you know, never really thought that much about it until more recently. It was featured, it was a featured song on uh, the TV show The West Wing. They did an episode where Ave Maria played an important part of what happened. And uh, it, it made me really listen to the song deeper than I have in the past. That combined with, there was a movie called The Hitman, based upon the famous video game, The Hitman. It featured the, the song Ave Maria, but the, the song, uh, which was a, a, a great version, had a kid, like a, a child, 
uh, singing on it, you know, like a boys' choir kind of thing, but just one kid. And it sounded lonely. It sounded really cool. And it evoked an emotion in me. I said, man, I'd love to make that happen with the horn. You know, what can I do? My old twist on it, but I had this thing inside my head. I didn't really know how to reproduce that. So I thought of the horn, I, and I went to Pete, and I said, I got an idea. I said, let's start building a backing track for Ave Maria. And he goes, oh, okay. You know, he didn't really know what was going to happen. And I didn't know either. I just never did. So uh, we build the backing track. The day comes. I got to bring the horn in his house, and we pop on the mic, and sound check, okay, let's get it run. I record half the song. I say, cut. I take a listen. I say, I'm not going to waste my time if it's not going to come out good. <laughs> you know what I mean? And two minutes after listening back, we looked at each other and said, holy crap, this thing sounds really good. And it was different for him, too, being, I don't think he ever recorded a brass instrument before, you know, as a vocal, as, as a lead, as a lead line, and dealing with uh, multiple layers of classical music underneath it, you know, so it was, it was a first for both of us. And, we, you know, we, we went up about it a little slowly, and even once we finished it, I said to myself, what the hell am I going to do with it? <laughs> it was so out of my arena, you know, we're so used to rock and roll and all this crap. You know, like, like I said earlier, it's a selfish kind of thing to make music. I had this thing inside. I wanted it to come out a certain way. Now we got it. What the hell am I going to do with it? He said, well, why don't you get some more songs together? You could put a record out or something. I said, dude, by the time I put together all the freaking songs, get the orchestration down, the harmonies, melodies, and we get this thing mastered and mixed, it's going to be freaking Christmas time. I said, aha. <laughs> I said, wow, if I really get this crap together, maybe I can get it out before Christmas, you know. So that was, that's what started me in the direction. I mean, right. when you said you had to get some more songs together, I'm thinking of maybe doing a 70s record, like a cover tune from Billy Joel or something, Air Supply. I, I didn't know. And I was like, oh, my God, what's going to take all the... So once I realized that the timing worked out perfect for putting out a Christmas record, I said, now I have some direction. Now I said, oh, let me find my favorite Christmas songs. I'm going to freaking do that. I said, hello. When I started thinking about it, I started looking at, you know, the landscape of Christmas music, which... By the way, you got to admit, it's truly the most wonderful time of year, and putting those songs as a soundtrack to Christmas, there is nothing more fulfilling as a musician to pour your heart out on something like that. i got to tell you, man, when, when you're in Rockefeller Plaza looking at that tree being lit, you know that feeling you get inside and the music kicks on up? It's like, oh, there's so much love. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's something really beautiful. And to accentuate that around Christmas time, it, nothing beats it, man. So the idea of putting together my favorite song from Christmas and making some love, you know what I mean? That That's like the coolest damn thing. And I, I can't tell you how proud I am of the way it came out and how happy I am with the production. Pete did an amazing job in the studio sonically making it come out right. And I, I think we stretched him as far as his capabilities. He's grown a lot as far as an engineer. He's kicking ass because he never mixed so many tracks. I don't think ever. <laughs> yeah, like I, like I said earlier, putting together orchestrations, there's so many layers of stuff going on. You're not just playing a guitar, bass, and drums. I mean, oh my god, you know. To, I mean, I have one song on there, Symphony for Christmas Eve. It's a full orchestra, and to get a handle on that sonically, it's a pain in the ass. To be quite honest with you, it's very tedious, very freaking tedious. Pete kept me in check a lot with that. So, uh, you know, he, he really, uh, i got to give him credit as co-producer on this project. And, you know, he, he, he helped me so much, I can't tell you how much uh, I, I'm appreciative of his, uh, his efforts. It truly is the background for arguably the greatest Christmas you could have. The, the, the soundtrack is truly second to none. I'm so happy with the way it came out. And, 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 and to, to further accentuate what I'm talking about, if people go to my website and they listen to the free samples, 
of what's up on, on there. Uh, you could hear uh, a sample from every song. I think I got two songs. You could hear the whole damn thing. So you can hear what I'm talking about. I don't want people just to buy the record. Just listen to it and, take, and, and see what I'm talking about. It's markguffscott.com. Check it out. Just take a listen. That's all I ask. Uh, also, we did a video for Ave Maria. It's on YouTube. He just type in Mark Scott, Ave Maria. It'll pop right up. We took all the, all the proceeds, 100% of all the proceeds of Ave Maria, and donated to Hope for Kids International. It's a worldwide charity established in 1973, and they do some amazing things for kids all over the world that have truly been stricken with some real disadvantages. And I carry the flag for them. I believe in them. Why? Because the people that work there don't just work. They sponsor kids. They go on the trips to make a difference. They dig the wells around the world. They, this year, they just dug their 500th well to bring fresh water to communities that don't have water. I mean, is that crazy? You, you know what I mean? Yeah. And when they take 90% of the proceeds and give that to the cause, you know, it, where, where some, some charities don't necessarily do that, you know what I mean? To stand right. by a company yeah. that, that has that kind of heart on their sleeve, you know what? I will stand next to them any time. I will be taking the trip to Uganda in, in April and, and really uh, really making a difference and raising some awareness out there. That, to, to a cause that, that truly makes a difference, and particularly around Christmas time, you got to do it for the kids, man. I, it makes me tear up a little bit when I, see, when I think about it, but it truly has been one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever been with, been involved with, and I never really expected it. I sponsor a child. I get involved with what's going on with them, and, and, and the people that work there – truly are making a difference, and I think that is the coolest thing that more people should be getting involved with. Very much so, and I listened to the EP this morning, and it, it truly is a very classical Christmas record in every sense of the word. I mean, it's definitely uh, something that you can share with your, your parents or your grandparents, and your trumpet playing on it that is the vocal line in each one of the songs extraordinarily good. I'm glad you like it, folks. Thank you. It is a true blue no. Christmas album. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, and I must say, it is kind of weird that, you know, I, I, I think if Alex Van Halen came out with a Hanukkah record, I'd be like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, if someone looks at me and says, what the hell am I doing? I, I get it, you know. It is certainly out of left field, but i got to tell you, this has been a part of me playing horn and classical music has been a part of what I was doing even prior to Trickster. So the fact that it's been rekindled and I had this idea to do something different, it is different, you know. There is one song on there, Little Drummer Boy, that I actually made a dance heavy metal tune out <laughs> I did say heavy metal. It's like full orchestra joined by uh, drum beat and electric guitar. It's pretty wild. That's one to take a look at if maybe you're not a classical fan. This some little uh, rock and roll guitar. Pete played the guitar, by the way. I can't play guitar very well, but uh, as far as the orchestrations on the album, I did about eighty-five mm, percent of everything. Pete helped me with the guitars. I cannot play guitar very well at all. I have such a lack of enjoyment playing. It's not in my fingers to play guitar. So thank, thank you, Pete. <laughs> and, there's, uh, listen, there's nothing wrong with having a traditional Christmas record, you know, no matter what your genre choice is. I mean, I, I listen to rock and roll 90% of the time, but that doesn't mean <laughs> enjoy a, a traditional Christmas record at Christmas time when you're sitting around with family or whatever, you know what I mean? Right. Well, yeah, I'm the same way, man. I listen to rock, you know, good 90% of the time myself. I that's the main thing. If, you, if you're talking about a Christmas record in July, it's like, what the hell are you talking about? If you start talking about it in November, December, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna want to talk about it more. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. So it certainly has its place in the time of year. And I think I, think yeah. I had some foresight on that to have it ready. Because you, you can't just make it the record in November. You have to, like, make it in, like, February, March. So it's done by <laughs> by Christmas time. So, yeah, it, it, it can be weird. But when you start hanging the lights and you start decorating the tree, you put that sucker on you tell me you're not digging it. We'll tie all the website links in the show notes at grownuprock.com. We'll put uh, Mark's website link in there and the link to the EP, and we'll even put the link to the charity. I appreciate it, bro. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, charity, it's uh, h4ki.org. Hope for Kids International. Mm-hmm. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. Yeah, for sure, and uh, much appreciated you spending the time. And before we let you get out of here, what trickster song is one of your favorites, Play Live? Play Live, there's one above all else that I love to beat the crap out of the drums as a line of fire.
kicked the uh, song uh, off the, uh, the, the two latest records. Pick a song to play us out. What would be a song of your choice to play us out? New Audio Machine, there's two. The song Machine is a big favorite, and also the song Dirty Love. That, that guitar riff on Dirty Love is just badass. Very Van Halen-ish, the drums groove, it, it, and uh, the chorus is kick that's very hooky. But, so I like that and, and, and Machine. So I'll let you pick which one you like better. <laughs> on, on Human Era, uh, let me think about that. Human Era, uh, Robbie the Edge of the Night is a freaking great song. Uh, Human Era, the song, is a great song. There's, there's a lot of good stuff, man, but I'd probably might say, oh, that or, there's a, there's a song on there called For You. There's a lot of double bass stuff, a lot of double bass drum, great guitar solo. Uh, that's a wild song, too. You know, that's actually, For You is a song that most people never heard Trickster play. I think that's a wild one. And that's more of a deep cut, if you will, as opposed to, you know, one of the more commercial Perfect. ones. <laughs> you put a smile on my face, bro. But try to get out in that San Diego sunshine and have a pina colada for me, tough guy. 
I'm going to go to the spa after I get off the phone with you. Oh, you poor thing. Oh, just make do. Just make do. I'll do my best to uh, have a mojito and uh, kick back in the spa for you. Right. It's my understanding that if you give the masseuse a nice little $10 tip, you get a bonus at the end there. So uh, don't, don't swear. Don't, don't, you know, don't, don't be cheap. Don't be cheap. Tell her I said hello. <laughs> It'll be our little secret, right. pal. I, I won't tell nobody. Yeah, okay. I'm sure my wife will never hear this. <laughs> Steven, thank you for everything, bro. You are the king. Thanks, Mark. Have a great day. You too, bro. Thanks, man. Later on. Bye. <laughs> NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com Code Pantheon Score more Fantasy Points